I get to the United Nations. I am the only woman on the Security Council. And I thought, I won't talk today until I figure out if they like me or not. And then I saw the sign in front of me, it said United States. And I thought, if I don't speak today, the voice of the United States will not be heard. Madeleine Albright has stood up to dictators, helped bring stability to war-torn Eastern Europe, and brought women to the table in negotiating for peace. For her, it was all part of what she called one of the best jobs in the world, U.S. Secretary of State. She was the first woman ever to hold that job, from 1997 to 2001. I'm Ambassador Milan Verveer, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. Today, we're featuring Madeleine Albright. Among her other qualities, Secretary Albright has a well-deserved reputation as an outspoken straight talker. Her sayings are memorable. One of the most famous being, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. So it's incredible to learn that it took her a while to actually find her voice. That's one of the amazing insights you'll learn from this conversation. I spoke with Secretary Albright at the Seneca Women Forum at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Listen and learn why Madeleine Albright is one of Seneca's 100 women to hear. Secretary Albright, we are absolutely thrilled to have you with us today. We all know that you're an extraordinary leader in the area of global affairs and foreign policy. But I know personally you're an extraordinary advocate for women's leadership, women's political participation. You chair the National Endowment for Democracy. You really put your own power and your own experience to promote women's leadership. Maybe you could tell us how you do that and why you do that. Well, Ambassador Verveer, uh, we do do that to each other. Um, <laughs> I'm delighted to be here and to have the opportunity to talk about all this. And I have to say that it is clear to me that when women are out there and we're all working hard, we do it together, not against each other. And I think that is a very important part. I am so grateful for all the things that happened. And I know I'm not supposed to say I was lucky, but basically I did manage to have my credentials together at a time that people were looking for the one woman. Uh, and so uh, I was able to kind of parlay one thing to another. But I have to say that one of the best things, and you and I will agree on this, is that we had an opportunity to work for and with the Clintons who believed in the fact that women should be able to pursue careers and uh, have a chance to show what we can do together. So I'm very grateful to them. And what, what is it that you do at NDI to promote women's political participation? Well, let me explain a little bit. Um, actually, what is interesting, we're about to celebrate our 35th anniversary. The national, what happened was President Reagan was in London speaking at Parliament, and he was saying that democracies were not real good about explaining themselves vis-a-vis -vis communism. So he came back to the United States and he started the Endowment for Democracy, which has four institutes, Democrats and Republicans, business and labor. Uh, and I was the original vice chair, uh, democratically put into place by fiat. 
Um, but what happened is we were trying to really figure out what we needed to do. And one of the things that we have concentrated on more than anything else is how to support women, women candidates um, in all over the world. Uh, and, um, and we are working on that now in a number of countries, explaining how the nuts and bolts of democracy work and how societies are better off when women are politically empowered. I have to say that um, when I became secretary, I was the first one to put women's issues central to American foreign policy. And not just because I'm a feminist, but I do believe that women that societies are better off when women are economically and politically empowered, and then Secretary Clinton took it to a whole, with you, a whole other level. But that was the part of it. Something that we're doing now with the United Nations um, uh, is to explain that even when we're able to support women, there still is a lot of harassment and very dangerous. And so with the UN, um, we have started something called Not the Cost, is to really show that we need to support women as they are being harassed for running for office. And so it's not just a matter of getting people to run, but to be supportive. And it does make a huge difference. And NDI is very much the center of that. You know, it, it really is difficult for women in politics. And I remember a woman uh, in Africa saying to me, you know, she, she wanted to run for the parliament. She said, they say to you, well, if you have a family, why aren't you with the family? And if you don't have a family, there's something wrong with you. Right. So she said, either way, you can't win. Uh, but when you were ambassador to the United Nations for the United States. And I know that when you arrived at the UN, there weren't too many female ambassadors. Uh, but being that you were representing the United States, you were in a very strong position of leadership. How did you support the few other uh, women ambassadors? Well, let me just say, it was one of the, there were 183 countries at the UN when I was there. Uh, and it was one of the first times I didn't have to cook lunch myself. So uh, <laughs> I asked my uh, assistant to invite the other women to the residence so that we could, I could meet them. And I get there, and there are six other women out of 183. There was Canada, Philippines, Kazakhstan, Trinidad, Tobago, Jamaica, Liechtenstein, and me. All these years oh, later, right. she remembers. Yeah. So <laughs> what happened was, being the American, I created a caucus, and we called ourselves the G7. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. And um, we agreed that we would always stay in touch and take each other's telephone calls. So what happened all of a sudden, one of the male ambassadors at the UN said, why would you be talking to Liechtenstein? And I said, well, have yourself replaced by a woman and I'll be very happy to take your call uh, whenever you want. But the thing that we did do, we did become very good friends and supported each other in so many ways. But the interesting part is what we were able to do because at that stage we were dealing uh, with the issues in Bosnia where women were being terrorized and raped and made into refugees. And so we lobbied to get women judges on the war crimes tribunal. And we did manage to get two women judges. Uh, later, we did a lot of things to do with HIV and AIDS and really did try to use our power as the G7. Uh, now there are many more women uh, and um, also women ambassadors in, in Washington, but never enough, and women foreign ministers. Um, but I think that we really need to keep pursuing that. By the way, I'm going to tell one other story about the UN. I think many people have heard 
me on this subject, and I think we've all had this experience. You're in a meeting, you're the only woman in the room, and you decide that you're going to say something, and then you think, well, everybody will think it's stupid, so I won't say it, and then some man says it, and everybody thinks it's brilliant, and you're really mad at yourself. And so that happened to me early in my government career, before the Clinton administration, um, and then I taught at Georgetown, and I tried to explain to my students um, that they, everybody had to learn to interrupt. Nobody was going to raise their hands in class. My classes are a bit of a zoo, but I really <laughs> have said they have to do that. But the story is the following. I get to the United Nations. I am the only woman on the Security Council. And most of the meetings don't take place in that fancy room, but in a, in a room in the back. And I sit down, and people start talking about a subject. And I thought, oh, well, I don't know. I won't talk today until I figure out if they like me or not. And then I saw the sign in front of me, it said United States. And I thought, if I don't speak today, the voice of the United States will not be heard. And you've got to speak. So speaking of that, um, I wonder when you assumed the position as the first female head of the State Department, our foreign minister around the world, whether you felt it was any kind of a super responsibility in a way, beyond the responsibility of any Secretary of State, but being the first woman, did, was that extra pressure? Was it... Well, first of all, I didn't believe I'd ever be Secretary of State. What happened was Warren Christopher, who'd been Secretary of State, made clear he was going to not be there for a second term. And so the period of the great mentioning started happening. Um, and my name was out there and somebody said, well, a woman couldn't be Secretary of State because Arab countries would not deal with, a, with a, an American a woman. And so what happened was the Arab ambassadors at the UN got together and they put out a statement saying, we've had no problems dealing with Ambassador Albright. We wouldn't have any problems with Secretary Albright. Then what happened, um, somebody at the White House, and I, I, never, I never want to know who, said, yeah, Madeline's on the list, but she's second tier. Um, and, and so that I, was the quote in that, the Washington yes, it Post. It was the quote in the Post. So I never thought I'd get to be Secretary of State, and I was thrilled to be. And I know as a fact that the only reason I was was because of Hillary. And the reason I know that is because President Clinton said so publicly when we were <laughs> abroad one time. We had this shtick. We uh, often travel together, and I would introduce her, and she would introduce him. And he actually said that during this period of the great mentioning, Hillary would come to him and say, why wouldn't you name Madeleine? She's closest to your views and expresses them better than anybody else. So, and besides, it would make your mother happy. So that is how <laughs> it happened. But partially, and I'm not just saying this because I'm sitting with you and, and Hillary's coming on, is that the partnership that we all had and the support that we had for each other, I think, made a very, very big difference. The thing that happened, one of my first trips actually was to the Gulf Cooperation Council meeting. It was in Kuwait. And I'm sitting there with the other uh, foreign ministers. And they end up by saying, uh, you know, this was a great meeting. I said, well, perhaps you've noticed I'm not dressed exactly as my predecessors have been. And thank you very much. You've been very kind to me. And next time we'll talk about women's rights. And we did. And I did feel that I was representing a great country and that I had a huge opportunity to show that we were able to do what we had to do. I did work hard. 
and I did believe that I had to deliver, uh, and I think there were advantages to it. Uh, but there was always the issue of how you go to a country and start a conversation and say what you have to, which mostly that what you have to has to do with human rights and women's rights. So I'd be somewhere and I'd be nice and charming as best I could. And all of a sudden I'd say, I've come a long way, so I must be frank. And so I really told it like it is. But there was a responsibility about being the first woman. There's no question. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after a short break. So you uh, then succeeded uh, to lead the way for two other women to be named Secretary of State in a fairly short order, given a 20-year span. Um, And it was certainly a trailblazing um, recognition that of the role uh, that you started and then others followed. And I, I understand, and maybe you could tell us if this is true, that your granddaughter was hearing you one night yeah. opine about this great yeah. role that you had played. And so, was she impressed? No. no. Um, <laughs> what happened was my granddaughter... Uh, about eight years ago, when she was seven, said to her mother, so what's the big deal about Grandma Maddie being Secretary of State? Only girls are Secretary of State. And so in her lifetime, there had been Condi and Hillary. And since then, actually, I have said there are some little boys out there who have been impressed by the fact that a man can be Secretary of State. Sort of. (laughs) It, we have really achieved something when we don't have to comment on the first right. anymore, yes. when it can become uh, normal. We're talking here a lot today about uh, technology and innovation. Um, have you experienced um, the importance of technology in terms of advancing the kinds of things that you've been working on, particularly uh, yeah, for women? No. no question. It has made a huge difference, and I have been very interested in my role first with the National Democratic Institute, about how democratizing technology really can be or should be um, in terms of allowing information to people and really connecting people in many ways. I think we need to understand the positives and negatives of technology. And um, by the way, I, I use this line fairly frequently, and I always say it's completely plagiarized from Silicon Valley, but it explains so well what is going on. People are talking to their governments on 21st century technology. The governments listen to them on 20th century technology and provide 19th century responses. So there's no faith in institutions. Uh, So there's a lot. And then I've just been at some seminars on artificial intelligence. Mm. I do think that we have not fully understood the impact of technology on all our economies and we need to grasp what artificial intelligence is going to do um, even more and how we deal with that as societies. Well, and I know one of the things troubling about AI is who's doing the inputting and where is the presence of, of women yeah. in, this, uh, in this field? Uh, because what's going to come out is going to be essentially what was put in. Right. Uh, and you won't have uh, the kind of predominant or even uh, fair representation like is in this room. 
I do think that some of us are not, by the way, my classmates are here, oh. and I went to Wellesley at some time between the invention of the iPad and the discovery of fire. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, it should be true of you guys, too. Um, uh, but I do think that those of us, and by the way, um, you know, so we know we talk, talk an awful lot about millennials. I'm a perennial. And so <laughs> what we have to do is figure out how to use the technology for the improvement of all of us. Yeah. But it truly has become even a big foreign policy issue in terms of it being used for radicalization by violent extremists, uh, what's happened in terms, not just in the United States, but around Europe in terms of trying to change elections um, in a way that uh, is truly interfering. So there's a lot that was not on the foreign policy issue that is now risen Very much to the so, forward. and I think people need to understand very well. You and I are both at Georgetown, and I think we have talked about what the curriculum for people that are in the larger field of international affairs has to be. And, uh, you know, it isn't just taking political science and history. What we have to do is understand um, health issues, um, issues to do with any kind of scientific thing. The world is not flat. Um, and I think there are any aspects of that curriculum that we have to work on so that people really are prepared to have the discussions uh, about AI and global warming and all the various aspects that are going on and the health issues. So it's a, it's a growth industry and a field and it needs women. I really believe that in terms of moving forward to get something that we want in the 21st century instead of the mess that's going on now. That, by the way, is a diplomatic term of art. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, um, you never stop. You're a force of nature, and uh, it's hard to keep track of you of any, at any given time. Uh, and we also knew you're an author, and everybody has gotten your book today called Fascism. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Fascism, a warning. And I wonder if you could tell us why you wrote it and maybe people will yeah. get into the book that much faster when they yeah. leave here. Well, first of all, it has a very bland title. Um, I decided it had to be historical. A lot of it is uh, personal to me. I was born in Czechoslovakia in 1937, and the Nazis came in in 1939, um, and a lot of people uh, died as a result of fascism. Um, as it turns out, I learned 38 members of my family did. And so I think that, so it was very personal, but also I thought it needed to be put into historic context. So I begin with Mussolini, and then Hitler, and then I Franco, and then I talk about various places now in the world uh, where I'm very worried by the dictatorial authoritarian leaders. Um, and um, the best quote in the book actually comes from Mussolini. And he said, if you pluck a chicken one feather at a time, nobody notices. So there's a lot of feather plucking going on now. And you can't say those words too quickly together. Um, yeah, um, but uh, I do think there is a warning about the kinds of things that are going on. And I have um, the part that I learned in writing the book is Mussolini, Hitler, and Franco came to power constitutionally. Uh, Mussolini, there were complications with party politics in the end of World War I, and King Emmanuel turned power over to him. 
Hitler. There were various issues going on in Germany, um, there, some as a result of the Versailles Treaty, some of um, uh, financial and the Weimar Republic wasn't strong. So von Hindenburg turned power over to Hitler. Then also in Spain, there was a weak government that folded and the king there turned it over to Franco. The countries that I write about now, starting with Orban in Hungary and what's going on in Poland and in uh, the Philippines with Duterte and Turkey with Erdogan and Chavez and Maduro in Venezuela, they were all elected. And I think it's only, and I do say that communism is also fascism, there they had a uh, revolutions, but all the other ones were people that were elected. And I think we need to understand what the conditions are that create this. I do think people need to run for office or support those that do. And then uh, something that I think is actually hard to do, which is to talk with the people that we disagree with. Mm. Um, I don't like the word tolerance because it's tolerate, put up with. Mm. I think we need to respect those views. Um, I don't want to be in an echo chamber. I want to learn a lot. By the way, you should all be glad that you live here and not in Washington, because in Washington, I listen to right-wing radio as I drive um, and do a little yelling and a few hand gestures, and so <laughs> it's possible that I'm dangerous. It, it may be the secret of longevity. Well, what I, you know. But then, I don't think there's ever been a book or a speech that doesn't quote Robert Frost. So my quote is, uh, the older I get, the younger are my teachers. And I think we need to support those young people that marched because of Parkland and all that. Um, that's what we need to do. Well, Madam Secretary, we're glad you're perennial. Yeah. And may you continue to lead. And yeah. thank, thank you, you. So much. Um, That's what we need to do. I want to thank Secretary Albright for that great conversation. She has so much to teach us all, whether we're dealing with diplomats at the United Nations or co-workers on the job. She shows why it's necessary to speak up, even when it's difficult, even when we're unsure of the outcome, because every voice deserves to be heard. And of course, she reminds us it's important to follow up your words with action. Finally, let's heed her suggestion. Let's get out of our bubble and spend time talking to the people with whom we disagree. The world today could use more dialogue, empathy, and understanding. For more great listens from Seneca Women, check out our other podcasts. Every weekday, join us for a brief take on all the good that's happening in the world on Seneca's Here's Something Good. And every Thursday, listen to inspiring and shared learnings from legendary women entrepreneurs on Made by Women. If you want to support organizations making a difference for women and girls, you can donate to the Women's Economic Future Fund. Learn more on our website at SenecaWomen.com. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. Special thanks to our iHeart producers, supervising producer Molly Socha and supervising sound producer Matt Stillo. If you like what you heard on the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. We hope you'll join us for our next episode of 100 Women to Hear, where we can all listen, learn, and get inspired. Have a great day.